3: And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA.
4: Ask the AMP is, is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. And if you have a question, reach us at podcasts.com. At aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org.
2: And if you like the show, subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The local grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like. Where do you shop?
2: <laughs> no, no, those not not laundry pods. Oh, <laughs>
4: podcasts.
3: Tide, Tide I get, tied I pods. get my,
4: I get my podcasts from Instacart.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about your door, Paul.
2: Oh, yeah. So I'm coming home from a trip out to West Texas, which I have family out there forever. And, and I kind of forgot about how windy and blustery it can get sometimes. And the, uh, the door f- on my... You're flying the Cirrus? I'm flying the Cirrus. Yeah. So the, the door on my Cirrus is in my hand and it's halfway open and a gust comes along. It's not from a passing king air or helicopter. It's just a gust, and it just yanks it right out of my hand. And I hear this horrible snap sound, and the uh, the door stay has separated from the door. Not the composites. The composites were plenty strong. Huh. It was the bolts that failed. Wow. And, uh, huh. So yeah, it it took a little finagling to get the door where it would closed so I could make it home because I was halfway halfway home from uh the far left side of Texas. And
3: so what uh, brand of duct tape did you use?
2: Oh no, no. I only used the finest duct tape, but this was the <laughs> this this required something a little more um ferrous, shall we say?
3: Uh, a safety uh, oh a paper clip. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Let's go with that. That works just fine.
3: <laughs> safety pen, yeah.
2: Safety pen, yeah.
3: Yeah, well, it's just a door. Geez, I mean,
2: it's just a door. But you know, it is a reminder sometimes. If you're if you're a mechanic en route somewhere and dealing with those kind of problems is one thing. You know, Mike has shared many stories of uh, the battlefield repairs that he's done, and all I know, all three of us have. But the, you know, the poor owner that's out in the middle of nowhere, and some little something happens, and then there's a debate. Well, can I do this safely? Is this going to be a big issue? Am I going to get in trouble or for whatever reason? Yeah, you know.
4: But by the way, if, if if you do have to make a temporary repair with duct tape and you're concerned about being ram checked, did you, did you know that Home Depot sells transparent duct tape?
5: <laughs> Ooh,
3: or colored duct tape. You could just match the color. That's in, that's in, the,
4: that's in the PMA department of... of, of uh, Home Depot, but they actually do sell transparent duct duct tape, which I thought was one of the great inventions.
2: You know, you could use that externally. No, because then you can see through it to see the damage. So you don't want to use it on the outside. (laughs)
5: You
2: you want matching duct tape for external repairs.
3: I once did a duct tape repair in Alaska when I was taking off from a gravel or landing on a gravel strip and I put a rock into my stabilator and the, the tip cracked. Well, that's standard
2: operating procedure in Alaska. In Alaska.
3: I felt like a real Alaska pilot after I duct taped (laughs) that thing back together. I left it on for quite a while. I was so proud of it.
2: (laughs) We had a a 185 on floats, amphibious floats, oh, 30-something years ago. And I was flying the plane home from where we lived. And I forget now why, but there were some, I think, some airplane part, you know, long stringers or something that I had gotten from a Cessna distributor and I was taking them home to dad for some repairs that were being done on a different airplane and I I strapped them to the float and I was I felt so bush piloty I mean these were it was like nothing but as I'm flying along for the 2 hour trip down here from Kentucky I kept looking out thinking how proud of myself was I was that I had these parts externally strapped to the airplane, just like you with your your tape on the horizontal. (laughs) It's just something very, I don't know, (laughs) independent about
3: that. (laughs) Our first question comes from Tom, who's asking about play in his fuel selector. Go ahead, Tom.
5: Okay, well, the last annual I had done, my IA was questioning the sloppiness in the handle on the fuel selector valve because it has close to an inch back and forth when it's in a one of the detents like if it's on both it's got a half inch to the left and a half inch to the right you can move the handle before the valve will actually move and he was thinking that maybe the little u-joints on the shaft that connects the handle to the selector valve was more you know and it it doesn't look worn visually. I mean, took a a mirror and a flashlight, checked it all out, and it even still had the grease from the factory on there. And we bought that, my brother and I bought this airplane brand new in September of 78. And it's been that way ever since it was new. And, but how do you tell somebody that that slop's normal, is there a, a tolerance on that stuff? Or I couldn't find anything on it.
2: Wow, you've owned this since 19, since it, that's, that's pretty amazing.
5: And what kind of airplane Yeah, my is brother and I bought it new partners oh, and uh, he started having health issues. So I bought him out, but I still have it and it's in real nice shape. It's got about 2,500 hours on the airframe.
2: That's really cool. Well, so I'll jump in because I do a lot of Cessna stuff, and it is kind of a complicated little mechanism to go from the selector to the valve itself. Your airplane doesn't have the AD, but there's an AD that came out back in the 80s sometime, but it applied to the, like the 200 series airplanes. And it it was a one-time AD, which I thought was really strange. And it was about uh, a roll pin at the bottom of that shaft where it attaches to the fuel selector. And the roll pin could migrate out of position so that when you were flying at night out over the middle of the desert or the mountains or the ocean and you would change your tank, the pin would know that you were there and it would migrate totally out. And it would stop travel as you go through the off position because not all of the Cessnas have a left, right, and both. Some just have left, right, and off, and you have to travel through the off position to get there. So it was decided that was a bad thing. But your airplane, the AD doesn't apply to your airplane, to the 100 series airplanes. But I think that there's no criteria in the service manual that I've ever heard of that says how much free play you can have. But I think this AD gives a really good reference, if you will, because it's a very similar design. And what the AD wanted everyone to do was to make a one-time inspection to make sure that the handle didn't move more than 15 degrees either direction before the valve began to move. I think, well, at least in our shop, we check this at every annual inspection because it's it seems like a wear item, even though they were looking for a roll pin that might be out of place with the safety wire in the roll pin that's taken care of, but you might try putting a a compass on there and just seeing how much degree travel it has. And uh, 15 degrees is a whole lot more than you think it is. But uh, it's a good reference.
4: Yeah, 15 degrees is a lot. (laughs) It it is. It is a lot. But From from, from his description, my guess is it is not wiggling 15 degrees. That's a third of the way.
3: No,
5: it's... yeah. Uh, I thought maybe that Cessna designed that sloppiness in the little U-joint so that it didn't have that binding feel like with a tight U-joint, you know, like a four-wheel drive truck or something. You're turning <laughs> sharp. You can feel it binding yeah, I, up.
2: <laughs> I think they designed it this way because it was the least expensive U-joint they could find that would do the job. I think that's probably where well, that went. Well, you know,
4: and, and, and th- this is a 172 where, where you hardly ever used, uh, touch the fuel selector because it just sits on both both. both all the time. It's not like a two ten where you're switching tanks all the time. So it seems to me the 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 risk is minimal here. And it it also seems seems pretty unlikely that that that, that handle is wiggling more than fifteen degrees either side of center.
5: Yeah, I don't think it's a, a safety of flight issue at all, And because like you say, you hardly ever use it. It's always in both, except when I'm fueling up. If I'm on a tilt, you know, the pad is tilted and you want to keep it from feeding yeah. from one tank to the that's other.
3: Right. Yep, that's what I do.
5: Yeah, very seldom is it ever used, and I don't think it's a problem, but I, I just was wondering if there was a reference. That 15 degrees, I'll check that out for sure. Too.
2: Yeah, I'll have your mechanic. He knows about this AD. If he does any work on 200-series Cessnas, just have him go check it out. It's done in the mid-80s, and he can use that as a—it's just a nice reference. He'll, he'll probably be perfectly satisfied to use that as a reference.
5: Yeah, well, he he was kind of wondering if I should pull it out and, and inspect it, but I'm no. kind of like, Mike, I read all you guys' articles, and I'd rather not be taking stuff apart if it isn't written.
3: Especially not that. that That's a yeah. mess to pull out from what I gather. It's real tight space. You have to
2: defuel the airplane. But I yeah. think a, a really good inspection, you already mentioned that you got underneath there and got a look at it, uh, that that is probably way better than taking it apart. If you can inspect it and know what it's conditioned, I think you're probably in pretty good shape.
5: Yeah, I, I don't think there's a problem, but, uh, you know, it is awful. But the little U joints are just, there's a lot of slop in them, and I, they must have made it that way. I mean, I it just kind of weird to make it that loose, but I I wonder if they didn't do that on purpose so it wouldn't try to get that binding feel when you're moving it.
2: <laughs> well, I tell you what you do. Go check out all your friends' 172s, see what they do, and if theirs are worse than yours, have the mechanic then go check those all out. No, 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 don't do that. No, that's sorry. That was not, that was not a good idea.
5: I, I did tell my IA that if he got a chance to check some other Cessnas, you know, to go go try a few because I think they're all gonna be like that. I mean,
2: yeah.
5: at least that series.
2: It's a good reference.
4: Paul, but, have you ever heard of one of those U joints like coming apart?
2: I haven't. Um, I mean, I think the AD came out because one did twist, but that was way back, you know, in the eighties when it did. But it's one of those panicky feelings, especially you get in and I deal with a lot of the two tens and those fuel selectors can get really stiff and I don't think that they've had very many of them fail I don't know of any specifically but as a pilot you just know it's going to so you know you're and as a mechanic you're thinking oh this is this is going to break it's going to break but the reality is I don't think they do
3: I've never had mine stick but I exercise mine after every flight I turn it to a left or a right setting just so that it I was, again, I was trained to do that, but it's because we don't want it unevenly draining or one tank cross-feeding to another tank on a on a slope. And I think moving it constantly, and I also use it to balance out my fuel in flight sometimes because uh, they drain unevenly, uh, they draw unevenly no. from tanks. Yeah, they do. No, <laughs> on a single engine Cessna? Yes. Oh. Because I'm probably flying crooked. Why don't you just That's say- what it is. <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, but- that is strength. Some of those 182s, I have a friend with a 182, and it does that severely. It'll yeah. beat off a of one tank and fly real bad. He uses the selector quite yeah. a bit.
3: Or you could have a vent tube blocked and that would cause it to drain unevenly or a leaking fuel cap maybe would anyway. But the the point is that I exercise my fuel selector valve frequently and I think that's kept it from binding, which is serving me well. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, the the 182 is the worst at at feeding unevenly. The Cardinals actually do exceptionally well the way their systems no, uh, yours yours is not. yours no, is,
3: I mean, if you read the Cardinal Digest, I think you'll hear exactly the opposite. It's a common uh, problem.
2: Well, there you go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what do you know, Paul? No I don't I You don't just know. do this for a living, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anyway,
5: yeah, I sure appreciate this input on this, and then how'll. Uh, uh, do the 15 degree check on it and uh, discuss it with my IA and I uh, like to say I don't think it's a problem and I'm not too worried about it. I just was wondering about the reference on it.
3: Well, and Tom, you know, if you bought the new shaft for $1,500 from Cessna, it would probably have play when you put it in, right? That would.
5: Oh, I'll, I'll bet <laughs> it's just as sloppy as this one because yeah. like I say, this is a low time airframe and it doesn't get used much. And uh, yeah. it, I'll bet the new one's just as sloppy as this one.
3: So we agree with you, but it it is good to give your uh, mechanic something to chew on, you know, give him that AD and let him look at it.
5: Yeah, he's a good guy. I really like him, and I do almost all the maintenance myself. He just signs it off.
3: Ah, you don't want to screw with that situation.
5: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. I I even did the 500-hour stuff on the magnetos, took them out and sent them in, had them done, put them back in and timed them, and he just checked it when... Signed it off.
3: Nice. That's a great arrangement. Don't 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 change that. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, coming onto the show. We appreciate your question.
5: All right. Well, thank you guys. You guys take care and good talking
3: to you. You take care. See you, Tom.
5: Bye.
2: Our next question is from Sam, who's getting a little nervous about some oil analysis reports. Uh, Sam, let us know what's on your mind.
1: I have a. Um A Bonanza I've owed for seven years, 1,100 hours on the IO520BA, 500 of which I put on in the last seven years. The the engine and the airplane have operated very well for me. It has never hesitated, gurgled, surged anything. Of course it's boroscoped every annual and those boroscopes always look clean. I do I do fly Lena peak. Compressions are consistently in the 60s and the 70s. And for the 7 years I've owned it, oil consumption is about a quart every 17 hours. No metal ever in any of the filters. So, feels really solid to me. My plan was to fly this uh, beyond TBO. However, the numbers, the element numbers in my Oil analyses are high. They have been consistently high since I've had the airplane, which sounds like a good thing, except for the fact that they're high. My mechanic is not at all concerned about these numbers, but I just thought I'd get a second opinion on whether or not I should be concerned about the consistently high metal numbers in my oil analysis.
2: Well, glad you, you, know, you also sent us a copy of your uh, Blackstone Laboratories oil analysis. So since there's three of us, we're going to give you a, what, second, third, and fourth opinion. we
4: are going to give our, you three, three different answers.
5: Three Probably, different yeah. answers.
2: <laughs> so I'll, I'll start, but what's interesting to me, and, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but first off, when we look at oil analysis, we're looking for things that are trending, usually trending in a negative way. So just a kind of a big picture view to me, looking at your data, I don't see that it's trending. It's like you said, it's always been kind of high. And I don't see a, a major trending set. I certainly don't see anything that makes me want to go attack the engine with tools. So, but that's just my first impression. What do you guys think?
4: Well, the thing that struck me here, and and Sam, let, let me know if, if I'm wrong about this. But but it it looks to me like early last year you put some cam guard in this engine. <laughs> but the the last oil change you didn't put cam guard in the
1: engine. Am I correct about that? Well, there's even a longer sorted story than that. I originally had been putting. <laughs> oh no!
2: See, in, you're in, supposed to tell us the long story first. Okay. <laughs>
1: sorry, I had been putting in uh, Airshow W100 plus. and Avblend,
2: blend and uh,
1: between a couple of things between listening to your podcast and advice from my uh, my mechanic who is a bonanza guy he was concerned about the av blend and the additives in the w100 plus also so i did this last time just use w100 plus but it is my intent going forward unless this unless this creates a concern for you to go with what you've recommended, which is the W one hundred and CamGuard.
4: Yeah. But the but the reason I said that is because in the in in the oil sample that was taken in August of last year, I'm seeing a, a big elevation of calcium, which typically tells me that you that you put CamGuard in the engine. All along it it has had pretty high phosphorus, which is indicative of the W one hundred plus uh, anywhere additives that are in W100 plus, but then I see the calcium dropped way down to, to 20 parts per million in the last oil change. So it, it looks like you stopped using the the Cam Guard. I would certainly suggest that you that you start using the Cam Guard again. It's interesting that when you started using the Cam Guard, your your iron dropped from 141 parts per million to 102 parts per million. And those were both oil changes with virtually identical times on them. It's not necessarily that the cam guard did all of that. It may have been that the 141 sample was taken in a period when the airplane was idle or something like that. And you had some light rust buildup on the cylinders. I don't know the entire history just from looking at the oil report.
3: No, has but he cons- has he confirmed the Camguard? I didn't actually. Yeah, hear. did
2: you? What didn't you say that you switched out of Avblend, but you haven't started using Camguard yet, right?
1: I, I did use the Camguard the one time. Yeah, oh, okay. that's what it, that's okay. what it looks like.
4: Yeah. That's what it looks
1: like. So, so do you agree with my do you agree with my way forward, which is to go with the W100 and Camguard, not the W100 oh, yeah. plus, yeah. but the W100? Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: Yep. So tell me which which of these again did you well, stop? Well, except
1: except
4: you're you're based in Virginia, is that correct?
1: Uh, yes, I I go back and forth regularly between two homes, Virginia and Pennsylvania. So okay. I, well, I fly yeah, the airplane
4: in, reg- almost weekly. Yeah, it get it gets pretty cold there in the winter, and and so I'm I'm not sure if if I was based in a climate like that that I wouldn't I wouldn't use something like Phillips XC twenty W fifty multigrade rather than I mean, once it starts getting warm, there's no problem using W100, but W100 is not a great oil to use in the winter when it's cold, so especially if you're dealing with with starts at sub-freezing temperatures, which, you know, occasionally you, you
1: do during the winter. Fortunately, in Pennsylvania, I am in a heated hangar.
2: So I have to ask two questions. One is, why did you start using Avblend in your oil, and on which of these – Events? Did you stop using Avblend so that I get that reference?
1: I have probably been using Avblend since I started changing my own oil in my own airplanes, which has been this bonanza for seven years, and before that, a Mooney for ten years. So mm-hmm. it's just it's what I knew. The switch was as a result of just listening to your podcast. Where? But uh, when did that? Something came, you guys like better. So when did you make the switch? That would have been the August. Oh, i'm sorry the
3: march yeah after the march 2020
2: yeah okay so yeah
3: they can
4: look jump. at look at the calcium yeah and everything what starts everything
2: like, starts looking better i just hadn't i hadn't seen someone that's used Avblend for a prolonged period of time and then suddenly stopped using it so i was yeah, interested was, in the markers
4: years and years and years ago um decades ago when, when av first was released it was uh it was an old uh, automotive additive called lankite and they rebranded it as ab blend for for aviation use and we we ran some tests on it where where we treated one engine of a couple of twins and didn't treat the other engine and, and did regular well analysis and the good news is we couldn't see tell the difference. And the bad news is we couldn't tell the difference. In <laughs> other words, it, as far as we could see, the abblend didn't do any good, it didn't do any harm. It just, you know. So I, I don't I don't recommend ab because I'm not convinced it does any good, but but I don't actively disrecommend it because I'm not convinced it does any harm. But I am convinced that CamGuard does good. And, and
1: uh, you'd use that every old change? Absolutely. Yep. And, Philips, and in between I'm sorry, Philip. 20 w 50 above what temperatures, Mike?
3: Below.
4: Below what temperatures?
1: Um, uh, again, if if the, the,
4: I think the official answer to your question is that W100 is is recommended for just temperatures of um, 40 degrees Fahrenheit up.
2: Yeah, that'll actually be in your POH.
4: And below 40 degrees Fahrenheit you're supposed to either use a W80 or, or go to a multigrade, and a multigrade grade is, is, but it, I mean, you can use the Philips XC 20W50 multigrade all year round if you want to.
2: That's what I do because but, but, my airplane- but def-
4: Definitely add the cam guard to it.
2: I use the Philips uh, multigrade grade year round mostly because my airplane, very stubborn, kind of like me, it doesn't choose to have its oil changes performed conveniently with the weather changes. I don't it's it's a very it's a very untrained airplane. I'm I'm going to have to do something
3: about Crack it. Crack the whip on that plane. Crack the whip. <laughs> I wanted to comment on the Blackstone. When I looked at it, um I can definitely see the higher levels. Uh, there's two columns that are shaded on the Blackstone. One says Universal averages, and that's for a cohort of aircraft that are Bonanzas with a similar engine, but it's the whole pool of Bonanzas that Blackstone has with that engine in its database. And, and those numbers are very low compared to yours. But the more important one is the unit location averages, which is the average rolling average for your particular aircraft over the years when you've sent them your oil analysis. And, and that's really, you need to be comparing yourself to yourself because the oil analysis, the key thing about it is not the specific sample that you got this last week, but the trend, what direction it's going in as Mike introduced this whole segment with. And as you can see, actually, your numbers have gone down from your average. So, right,
4: it, we're, we're, we're most interested in which way the needle
2: is moving.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a good way to what, say it.
2: Watching the trends.
3: And then the other thing just to point out is oil analysis is just one tool in your toolbox for monitoring your engine's health. and. The other one that I was going to definitely recommend is the borescope, but it sounds like you are borescoping at every annual, which is great. So if there is wear in the cylinders or any kind of issues with your valves, you're going to see scuffing in your cylinders and that would supplement the what the oil analysis is telling you.
2: But I think some of this conversation is slightly moot point because he says he flies it every weekend and that in itself will it's take care of all kinds of awesome problems. Do. Yeah. Yeah, good job. Good, keeping him so, happy. <laughs> anyway,
4: yeah. I, would, I, would, I would definitely keep using the cam guard, and I would not worry too much about the, the oil analysis report. You have to remember what the oil analysis is looking at. It's looking at microscopic wear metal particles that are so small that they can pass through the oil filter, because anything larger than that gets caught in the oil filter and does never get into the sample jar. So one of the things that it's hard for some people to understand about oil analysis is you, you can have cam and lifters coming apart big time, throwing off all sorts of ferrous metal, uh, covering up the magnet if you run it over your filter, and it'll never show up in the oil report because the pieces of metal that get thrown off by spalled cam and lifters are so big that they get caught by the filter and they don't ever w- w- wind up in the sample jar, and And you know, conversely, I don't care how bad an oil report is. I would never attack an engine with tools just because of what's in an oil report. What I would do is start looking closer with all of the other tools that I have available. I'll take a really close look at the filter. I'd run a magnet through it. Maybe I'd even send it out to a lab. I'd borescope everything I could get a boroscope on looking for what was causing those elevated wear metals, but I wouldn't start tearing an engine apart because of anything that's in a Blackstone report, it would, it just would be indicative of that, that closer scrutiny is required.
1: Okay. Thank you. Yeah. My concern was that there's something in the lower unit that I can't bore scope that was, that was starting to unravel. I mean, I need to be worried about that.
4: Right. And, and, and the best, the best tool we have for, for monitoring the condition of the bottom end is, is careful well filter inspection. And, and if you're, and if you're worried about something, I mean, one thing that, that, that a bad oil report might trigger is shortening the oil change interval so that you can, get, you can get a look at the filter more often. Well, thank you very much for your advice.
2: All right, Sam, great questions. We appreciate the time.
3: See you. Take care.
2: Our next question is from Lincoln, who's gone down the electronic ignition rabbit hole. Lincoln, welcome to the show. What you got?
6: Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Really excited to uh, pick the collective brain here. The question revolves around, yeah, as you said, uh, electronic ignition. So I have an experimental glass star, which has a superior XP three hundred and sixty engine. So a Lycoming O three hundred and sixty clone mounted on that XP three hundred and sixty is a Whirlwind one hundred and fifty one prop which is incredibly lightweight. I think it's the lightest weight prop I know of that's hydraulically controllable. It's 27 pounds. Wow. I guess that was part of its downfall. They didn't recommend, so they originally offered it for 360s, and then they had some issues with the ferrules fretting or wearing out. And so they reduced that to saying you should only mount it on 320s, and you shouldn't mount it on fuel-injected 360s, and... You shouldn't mount it on a 360 with electronic ignition. So this I is think, sort of
2: a... I think they're trying to tell you something, Lincoln.
6: They told they you this after you put it on, yeah. of
2: course. Yeah, of after, course. Yeah. After you paid for it and put it on the airplane. They're learning through
3: you.
6: <laughs> Full defense. It was. It, they didn't know it at the time. Uh, the fellow who built the plane, Leo, did find this out and was not exceedingly happy about it. But... Um, <laughs> So I, I bought the plane from him and the prop, the prop works great. I, I just sent it back for a rebuild and after it's 10 years old, excuse me, 15 years old. And the other thing that's coming up is I am just at about 400 plus hours check time. So I'm coming up to time to service the mags. So in the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, why? I, I would love to go electronic ignition, especially being in the experimental world this, why, why can't I use electronic ignition? And their explanation was that the explosion is sharper, which to yeah. me, as a layman, an explosion is an explosion is an explosion.
2: Well, first off, it's not an explosion. At least we hope not. If it's an explosion, I think we call that detonation. Correct. Oh, um, awesome.
3: yeah. So
2: <laughs> we, we don't wanna have an explosion if we can help it. So before we get to the real question here, You said you just had the prop overhauled, repaired, whatever. Did you get a a report, a condition report, to find out how it fared in those last 400 hours?
6: Yeah, condition report was great. Only sent it in because it was spitting grease. Technically, they have, I want to say it's a hundred, their their legal documentation says it's a hundred hour rebuild specifically for this issue.
3: Yikes. Oh, wow.
6: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, this, yes. It sounds like it's more like 300-ish slash if the prop is showing problems. Huh. So when it started spitting grease, it was time to send it in. It also had been well past the, the time demarcation line of three years. <laughs> so sent it back. They said the ferrules looked great. Everything was fine. And it's come back without any issues.
4: Lincoln, let me let me speculate without – I can't put words in whirlwind's mouth <laughs> but let me speculate about what they're worried about the sheer act of changing a magneto to an electronic ignition alone is not going to make the I I I would hate to hear the 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 term an explosion sharper <laughs> but the peak combustion pressure's higher and the and the power pulses of greater amplitude let's say But most electronic ignition systems have a variable timing feature whose purpose is to advance the timing when the aircraft is in cruise configuration. And that that results in some fuel savings and so on. And it's the advancing of the timing that increases the peak combustion pressures and the sharpness of the power pulses, if you will. So, I believe if you installed electronic ignition and you simply didn't hook up the advanced timing uh, feature, which is basically a, a manifold pressure sensor that that feeds into the electronic ignition system, that the prop would not know the difference. I think it's it's the variable timing that they're that they may be worried about. It also sounds like from the condition of your propeller, like they're worrying a little too much. <laughs> Because apparently your prop came through this, you know, mounted on an engine that they don't recommend, and so on for for quite a long <laughs> you, time.
2: You did everything and, wrong, and it still and, survived, <laughs> and, and
4: and it came out unscathed. So I have a feeling that they're that they're being a little paranoid about all this, but uh, that's what propeller people do. They, they they take paranoid pills in the morning. That's just part of the propeller culture. They're kind of zero tolerance people. So any rate, I, my speculation is that the, their concern about electronic ignition is not the electronic nature of it, but simply the fact that most electronic ignition systems include this variable timing feature.
3: So, Mike, is, is it that the power pulses aren't absorbed as readily because the prop is too lightweight, so there's a part of the prop that's taking the brunt of that beating and, and they're worried about that going first? The, the way it connects into the hub.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the, the power generated is very pulsy. The 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 engine. Uh, I'm not even sure. Um,
3: Especially on a four band
4: I'm not sure that an IO three hundred and sixty even has even has um, counter, uh,
3: harmonic harmonic
4: dampeners on the crankshaft. Yep. Usually, six cylinder engines do, but yeah. mine does. Some do. Yeah. yeah, but but in any case, the, the you know the 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 pulse of the power pulses are, are transmitted to the prop. The heavier the prop, the more of a flywheel effect it has to to, to absorb those things. Um, and the lighter it is, the the more of the blades are going to feel it. And so that's, you know, apparently what they're what they're concerned about. But again, I I don't think the the sheer act of adding electronic ignition would would change the amplitude of the power pulses at all. It's it's the variable timing that would do that.
3: And, and you could argue that Lincoln would want to go electronic ignition because he's looking for that advance for more power, but there's also other benefits of electronic ignition like less mechanical moving parts and more overall reliability. Yeah, yeah.
4: and, 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 it, and the, the variable advance is not really that much for more power, but it, gives you, uh, it, it does have some advantages in terms of fuel efficiency. Fuel.
2: Yeah. It's good for altitude. You're gaining a little bit of that extra power when you start losing manifold pressure higher altitudes, but I don't know. It seems like the prop survived pretty well. Let's
4: get to the bottom line here. This is an experimental. Lincoln can do anything he damn well pleases. He doesn't have to pay any attention (laughs) to what these Whirlwind guys say.
2: I think you ought to offer the propeller back to Whirlwind as an example of how wonderful their prop did, and here's the proof that they can examine all they want. And while they're looking at that, they could just send you a replacement to use, you know, a new one. And-
3: <laughs>
4: yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, apparently, that this that this airplane is is uh, is very nose heavy, and and that's that's why he wanted this ultra light propeller on it.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, we've got Whirlwind here at the airport where I'm based, and I'm very good friends with Jim Rust, who runs Whirlwind, and. We are. We regularly run his experimental propellers as test cases on some of the RVs over on our side of the field. So, I actually threw this question at him, but didn't get a response in time for the podcast. But if he does follow up with me, uh, Lincoln, I'll I'll follow up with you and I'll send you what I hear from him.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, great question, Lincoln. We appreciate the call.
3: Enjoy that glass star. Great. Have a good one. Bye bye.
2: Our next question comes from Dave, who's asking about uh, weight impact of sealants. What you got, Dave?
5: Okay, so uh, after listening to this month's podcast, I did have a couple questions. For both the, uh, the CPC sealants that were discussed
2: and the TFD treatments, are there any issues with the potential effects on weight and balance or remaining useful load? And then particularly for home builders, there's conflicting advice out there, but my real question is, if you do proceed with corrosion proofing all the component parts of like the wings, the empanage, the fuselage, etc. Are there any side effects of that corrosion treatment that would impact or impede the building process? Yeah. Well, I'm going to start with if if the application of corrosion protection has a detrimental effect on weight and balance, somebody got way too, too aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> stuff, you're going to have like puddles here and there. That's <laughs> I never well, I mean, thought about that.
4: <laughs> that's particularly true if we're talking about the thin-filled dielectric thin, things thin like film, Corrosion yeah. X and ACF50, because those go on in a layer that is exactly one molecule
5: thick. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but there's a lot I, of I surface
4: area. You, I defy you <laughs> to. I, I can to, see if the,
2: the belly drains were away. clogged up and they really kind of overfogged it and you had big puddles. I mean, I hadn't even thought about how much
4: yeah, corrosion I mean, if X. You're, if you were if you're putting on something like. Uh, like LPS two, then then I, then I can imagine that that you could conceivably have have a weight issue, not what much, does, but some.
2: What does a gallon of Corrosion X weigh? I hadn't even thought
3: about that. Six hundred dollars. good answer, Kelly. Yeah. I th-
2: I think that a gallon of Corrosion X might treat like. Two hundred airplanes or something. If it's if it's done exactly perfect,
4: yeah, it's it's fogged on in, in such a fine mist that it just like floats around like smoke, and it winds up creating a one molecule thick layer. Those 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 things are kind of magic molecules is that they're engineered molecules that that have a, a hydrophobic end on one end of the polymer and a hydrophilic end on the other end of the polymer and so one end sticks to the metal and the other the other end repels moisture and it's kind of magic stuff.
2: Yeah, so when you put on extra, when we fog a plane for the first time, we tend to kind of overdo it just because I don't know why it just happens. But other later applications, we don't put on nearly as much. But you talked about the wings and the empennage in the cabin. Don't forget your flight controls too, but definitely not very heavy on those.
3: So, but his next question about if you're in the process of building, would the corrosion treatments impede the build process? And I'm assuming we're talking, you know, like a metal rivet, you're riveting your RV together. Should you treat before you rivet? It's an interesting question.
2: Well, so let me just make a point because years ago I was building an RV 10 with my dad. So you're, and I do a lot of structural work. Every time you drill a hole in Alclad, you now expose the unclad part of the aluminum. So your corrosion problems are going to start at the drill holes. When If you're going to coat your brand new aluminum with LPS2 or one of those products, you're now creating a, an extra layer between the parts. So you're going to have a little different shear load on those rivets. Plus, the aluminum that you're putting together, the outclad, already has a corrosion-inhibiting layer built onto it, that's the clad part. So I, I think that doing it as you assemble is probably a little extra effort. If you're going to do something before you assemble, I might recommend an epoxy primer as opposed to one of these products. These are not really the right thing to put on brand new aluminum, I think, if you're building a whole brand new airplane.
4: Yeah, if, I mean, if you were, if you were using um, a TFD thing, you. You wouldn't want to do it before you painted it because it's hard to get off once you put it on, which is one of the nice things about it, <laughs> but, but not if you haven't painted the aircraft yet.
2: Yeah. And it weeps out everywhere. If, if you fog a, an in-production or a certified airplane or you know do an annual, then it's usually about two years before you can expect a paint job, a new paint job to be done and actually stick to the airplane.
3: So, Paul, going back to your uh, comment about the riveting, though, if you were to treat the pieces before you riveted them, you, you said you would change the shear load on the rivets, and it wouldn't be as good as if you had used untreated all-clad.
2: Well, because you're adding space. Now, you're adding, you're adding not much space, but the, the parts are designed to be touching one another, and the rivets just hold them there. Anything you put in between the parts allows the rivet to expand in between the two parts.
3: So you would see more fretting uh, with time? You
2: might, it depends on the application. You might see any sort of deflection between the parts. So yeah, it could be fretting. Now I'm, I'm going kind of over the deep end. I know this is, we're, we're talking molecules, thick layers and primer adds a thickness as well. But primer, epoxy primer, once it cures, it's pretty much a solid. Whereas these other products are never solid.
4: Yeah, no and and correct me if I'm wrong Paul, but it seems to me that the restart Cessnas that are built in the Independence plant, my recollection is that every piece of outclad that goes into those things is is dunked in a tank of epoxy primer before it's ever riveted on the onto the airplane. Every everything yeah. is is coated with epoxy primer.
2: Every, everything except the new rivets that get installed hold the parts together. So yeah, you see, you see a brand new 182 uh, and all the skins, ribs, stringers are beautifully epoxy primed uh, because, you know, the old 182s only lasted 60 years with absolutely nothing applied. So we want to be sure the restarts will, you know, last. You pretty know, much little, forever. Yeah, pretty much forever. You may have to replace some, some corroded rivets, but you won't be replacing the skins. But
4: I think, you know, I think that's what I would, I would do if you want to do anything is would be right? to put epoxy primer on the parts before you rivet them together.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a choice. The exception, uh, and this is part of design work, is when you're putting the fuel tank together on those Cessna 210s and 182s, uh, all well, the restart, uh, everything 1979 and newer, uh, the fuel tanks on the Cessnas are put together with the sealant in between the parts. So it kind of acts as a, like a gasket material. That would be an exception where there is material between the parts, but that's all part of their design. But, uh,
4: you're saying it's riveted with pro seal in place?
2: Pro seal in place, yeah.
4: Boy, that doesn't not give them a whole lot of working time to get those rivets <laughs> in, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, when we when we have a, a two ten wing in the in the wing jig and we're putting on the leading edge skin, that's a it's a challenge. We have a whole process we go through and and it's a terrible nightmare of a mess.
4: Yeah, if the ro- if the roach coach shows up while you're in the middle of doing that,
3: you <laughs> yeah. cannot break
4: for line. Sorry, guys. Right.
2: <laughs> you're committed. We're here all weekend.
3: So, Dave, <laughs> what kind of plane are you building?
2: Well, at this point, it's uh, strictly hypothetical for me. I was listening to the, the podcast because I'm thinking about either an RV-14 or maybe an RV-9, but that's nice. what's in mind. Those are awesome planes.
3: Yeah, yeah. You'll have a lot of fun with that. Sadly,
2: my uh, my RV ten went went up in flames along with one of my hangers, so I, I never got to finish it. But <laughs> nevertheless, <That's> so sad. <laughs> oh, that was that was a long long time ago. Oh, uh, but they're great planes, definitely. Well, thank you. Yeah, Dave, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. You're more than welcome. See ya.
6: Take care.
3: Next up is James, who's wondering if you get what you pay for with an engine overhaul. Go ahead, James.
0: Thank you. So the question really is when it comes time for overhaul, my understanding is that there's three basic routes you can take. You can go to the factory and get new or remanufactured. You can send your engine out to a, a shop that does engine overhauls. That's kind of what they do. Um, or you can have your, a local mechanic do a field overhaul. It's also my understanding that at the end of that process, no matter which one you choose, Technically, you're getting a, an engine that all meets the same specs, no matter which one you go with. Um, so the question is, what are the pros and cons of choosing one route over the others?
2: So I have to thank you. First of all, this is Paul, that uh, you're asking a question about a certified airplane uh, <laughs> and within the range of airplanes that we actually know something about.
4: Well, well, Paul, it is, a, <laughs>
2: it is a Mooney, though. Well, okay. God, I wasn't, wasn't going to go that way. You know, <laughs> I, I have a sister that owns a Mooney, so I have to be careful what I say.
4: Okay, James, what, what you said is slightly inaccurate, although for all intents and purposes, it's inaccurate. It's accurate. Um, when you get a new engine, or a factory rebuilt engine. We don't like to use the word remanufactured, but the proper regulatory word is a rebuilt engine from the factory. Those engines are built to what's called new limits. When you have an engine overhauled, whether by an engine shop or by your mechanic, the regulations only require that the engine be overhauled to what's called service limits, which are considerably looser. Most self-respecting overhaul shops uh, do overhauls to new limits. But when you're negotiating for an overhaul in the field, either with an ancient shop or with your own mechanic, you, you have to specify whether you want a new limits overhaul or not. You can't assume that it's going to be to new limits. Now, new limits includes the possibility of, for example, installing a, a, a crankshaft at an approved undersized dimension with undersized bearings uh, to restore new fits and limits. So, and, and that's true both of factory rebuilt engine and overhauls in the field. So it's possible that you might have an undersized crankshaft or oversized cylinders. In order to meet those new limits, that's that that's allowed by the regulations, and is still considered being within new limits.
3: So, and the implication is, if you get a um, factory new limits engine from the factory, it has more room to wear basically before it gets down out of all service limits.
2: It, I can't believe that we're totally avoiding the, the question. The, the obvious <laughs> question is. Why why are, why you are overhauling? we overhauling this engine? <laughs> yes. oh. Sorry.
3: I knew that was coming. <laughs>
2: Sorry. I could I just I I was resisting as long as I could.
3: Oh, well, he said he was just asking the question, not that he was actually going to do the overhaul.
2: But James, is this
3: hypothetical or are you seriously considering this?
0: So, my. so the the engine's in overhaul right now? <gasps> oh. oh, too late. <laughs> right. So, it's it's kind of a after the fact kind of question. Um
4: Oh, because we we would have we would have done our best to talk you out of doing that. You know? <laughs>
2: Absolutely, you, you but just... since you're there, it's a great decision. Everything's good. <laughs> be happy. Yeah, it's the best thing you could have done.
3: You know, it's funny. I've been there. I've had an engine well over TBO, and I find myself wondering what's going on in that engine. Maybe I should have it overhauled. And and it's that fear of the unknown. But then once I had it overhauled and all these unknown to me parts went into the airplane, I found myself laying awake at night thinking, what did I do? I put this stuff in my engine and now there's going to be an AD, which there was, or there's something's going to go wrong, you know. So it, it really is, it's easy to go both ways. And the fact is that if the engine's running well and you're monitoring its condition, you should have a sense of um, peace that everything's okay, you know, because you're watching it. So, anyway, but it's a done deal. So we're not here yeah. to make you feel no, bad. No, no. no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, statistic,
4: as I said, statistically,
2: great decision.
4: <laughs> statistically, um, overhauling an engine increases your risk of catastrophic engine failure, rather than the other way around. And there's there's good data to show that that, that the catastrophic engine failures almost always happen with low-time engines, not high-time engines.
2: Just as a as a suggestion, I would, in your first 50 hours of operation, of course, you know, be careful, as always, you're going to pay attention to the details. But on those first uh, two or three oil changes, I would spend a little extra time looking around the engine. Things settle in. Hoses are in different positions. Wiring is in different positions. So have that inspected really close. And... Maybe even have someone put uh, torque wrenches on the through stud nuts and just kind of verify there in, in at a proper torque. It's just kind of a feel-good sort of thing.
4: But, I mean, most importantly, operate the airplane with a test pilot mentality for the first 100 hours or so, because you, you are a beta tester of this engine.
3: Yeah, and it'll probably be fine. We're not trying to scare you. <laughs> right. But just, you Just, know,
4: just a little just
3: <laughs> you just your, your and a, spidey sense should an, just an be appropriate alerted.
4: level of fear is always a good thing
3: <laughs> okay so did that answer the question <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, 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 it did answer the question yes it did answer it was uh that definitely answered the question so thank you it was more uh definitely some things i did not know
3: yeah, but we, we did talk about the limits, and, and um, when you overhaul an engine, there's a service table of limits, and there's literally two columns, one factory new and one, you know, uh, I think it's, what's it service. called? Service service limits, service. Yeah. and and they're, they're specs, and you get your little caliper out, and you measure everything, and you throw it away if you're doing the first column, or you keep it if you're doing the second column, so it is pretty straightforward. I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons why you would choose an overhaul shop, not just, you know, what limits they're... Um, doing it too, You could also, you know, their 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 backlog, um, their warranty that they offer, the price, what the customers are saying about them. So it's definitely something you want to do a lot of research in before you pull the trigger.
4: And, and of course, those service limits only apply to the components that you're going to reuse. When you overhaul an engine, there's a long laundry list of components that are mandatory replacement items that you you need to throw away, even if they look in perfectly good condition.
3: Euthanize is the word Mike uses. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thanks uh, so much for the question, James. Uh, You take care and good luck with that new engine. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap. We know a lot about maintenance, a lot more than podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Give us your ideas on what you'd like us to talk about. Send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun, and we'll see you next time.
2: See you
4: then. Bye, everybody.